This week we were joined by Fidelity International's Global Head of Investor Servicing, Jackie Boylan. Jackie is so much fun. I can't actually, I think I've said this once before, but this might have topped it. I can't actually remember having so much fun recording a podcast with, uh, than I did with Jackie. Um, we, we start off talking about life in the sunshine, as I call it, life in Australia growing up, um, and some kind of big personal stuff that happened to Jackie, which shaped her approach to work, education, work ethic, that kind of thing, um, before fast forward, uh, relocating to the UK, how that kind of affects your life and how you approach relocating and, and landing in London. We talk about life at Fidelity and how she has proactively managed her career. Staying close to the edge, that's what she says. Um, talking about how you have to be close to the edge, you have to be constantly challenge and grow and stretch yourself and, and look for new capabilities. We talk about how Jackie offers opportunities for others within a team, how she manages and leads. But I think most um, importantly, we talk about how Jackie focuses on building the right team. And of all the podcasts we've done, I can't quite remember another one where we get so much insight into how you go about reducing bias in your interview process, how you surround yourself with not just the best people, but the best people that work as one, as a cohesive unit. And it was really good. And then we finish off by Jackie sharing, honestly, just four absolutely brilliant pieces of advice for the next generation of, of leaders coming through. It was really fantastic. Jackie is absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, let's get let's get stuck in. Jackie, good afternoon. How are you? I'm really, really well, thank you. How are you doing? I am. I am really well as well. Really good. Uh, Excellent. Uh, I'm. I'm having one of those weeks where I've got a holiday this week, so that's really good. Um, but it also means that you've got to do six times as much work in three days, right? You know. So yeah. 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 Uh, you actually... Well needed. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say you actually wonder whether it's worth going on holiday when you have to work so hard before you go. Exactly. But what's good about this conversation is that we spoke, I forget when it was there, it feels like a little while ago, it was definitely quite a bit before Christmas initially, and you were saying that, you know, it might be in the news quite soon that I get a new role, but I, I couldn't possibly share any details. And and all of a sudden, you are global head of investor servicing. So congratulations, That's sounds like a, a, a good step forward for you. Yes, thank you. And as, as I mentioned to you, I think it might sound slightly fancier than it really is. And I'm trying to reflect when we did speak and whether I knew anything then or not. I'm not sure if I did or whether I was just ready for a change. So, um, yeah, it's really exciting. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, just sometimes you know you can do your job well and it, you still love it, but actually just looking to kind of get closer to the edge and be a little bit like... I need to feel like this is difficult again. Um, so that's exactly where I am right now. I'm right on the edge. Close to the edge. Well, we'll we'll get to that later. But okay. what we're trying to do with this podcast is, is learn more about Jackie and not so much the global head of investor servicing. We'll kind of cover that, I'm sure. But um, I, I want to know about Jackie um, and particularly with yourself. I want to know what life was like growing up in Australia. Um can you can you talk to us about Australia? Yeah, sure. Um, 
I suspect was very different from growing up here, um, probably for a range of reasons because you don't have Vegemite on toast um, here. Or, or if it, if you have Marmite, apparently that's a really kind of, you know, weird thing, a polarizing thing, I should yeah. say, not a weird thing. Um, so growing up in, I'm from Sydney uh, in Australia, so very much... Um, Beachy, I suppose. Um, so, in in terms of childhood, you know, a pretty pretty um, standard, I suppose. You know, went to school, played netball. Um, probably the the big change that I remember one is when my younger brother was born. Uh, that was a big thing, and then probably when my parents split up as well. That that was definitely a bit of a, you know. A, a point of change in my life that I kind of remember at the age of nine. Yeah, that um, that that's quite a big one. But before we talk about that, then that's what does beachy mean? I grew up in north northwest England, where the beach was always cold and miserable anyway, so you didn't go. Um, what does beachy mean to us uh, UK folk? Well, sharks for one. Um, oh. No, there, there were no shark experiences, no, but but I know a lot of British people are worried about sharks, particularly in Australia. Um, no, I think it, it, it's actually more than beachy. It is more outdoorsy, you know, very much kind of a, memories are of being outside, of playing outside, of going to the beach uh, on the holidays, probably weekends as well. Um my grandparents, both sets, lived on the central coast, which is about an hour north of Sydney, but very pretty much kind of on the coast. So, you know, packed off to the grandparents every school holidays and probably like a lot of grandparents, how do I entertain these three children? So off to the beach we went. So, yeah, vivid memories of that. Um, but, but more, as I said, it was more outdoors, swimming pools, parks, that type of thing, um, which, which sounds quite idyllic. I'm sure it wasn't that idyllic that but different nice. from yours by the sound of it yeah mine was outdoors it was just raining <laughs> yeah i didn't need a jacket <laughs> yeah exactly but okay so let's on a slightly more serious note then so um you, you chose to bring up that you know at nine your um your parents split up so i guess why did you choose to share that on this podcast and kind of and and therefore what, what kind of effect did it have on you as a young person at that point yeah, I suppose sharing it because it was definitely a turning point in terms of probably having a relatively middle-class, family-oriented background to probably going to a little bit more um, single-parent meal, um, uh, you know, maybe a bit more angst, a little bit more emotional, a little bit what the heck's going on in my life, why aren't my parents liking each other anymore and why... Mm why things are a bit more of a struggle. And I, and I do raise that because I do think it formed how I focused on study and university and then doing what I do now. So that, that's probably why I mentioned it, it was quite formative. Um, I definitely remember it as a turning point. Uh, and even how I looked after my brother and sister, you know, you tend to grow up quite fast in that type of environment when I was only nine, but my brother was, five my sister was seven and so I think that kind of you know 
big sister, semi, can you look after the kids while my mum's out working kind of thing. It just it makes you grow up pretty fast, actually. And not that I remember it as being bad at all. It was it was absolutely fine, but definitely a turning point. Yeah, different as it was before, right? Um, yeah. And so um, are, are you saying that that, because you, you decided to reference kind of how you approached uh, education and university and, and now work now so are you saying that that kind of juxtaposition of comparing before to after made you understand the kind of value of money and, and guess working hard is that what you're saying yeah yeah and I don't know whether at nine I really kind of realized that but I certainly realized uh over the coming years what maybe some of my friends had some of the experiences they had versus what we could afford. And so it was in my mind was the way out was to work in an office and to be a businesswoman. And that would help me make enough money that I wouldn't have to be in the situation that my mom was in. So, so definitely, you know, something formative there. I don't know exactly what age that formed, but definitely, um, I didn't even know what actually being a businesswoman was or working in an office was all about. But to me, you know, whether I saw it on a movie or something, it, it, it held that you will be well off if you work in an office in a suit. Wearing a suit to work. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get to work though, and what I mean by work is, you know, the moment you would define your career starting. And there's always a little bit in between when your career started to maybe your first job, second job, third job. Um, you, you had quite a few part-time jobs when you were growing up, did you? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And just as you were asking that question, I was reflecting and I would say the part-time jobs that I had and particularly one of them was very formative. So I worked for a lady who actually had been a marketing executive, went into small business, um, took a punt on me in my first job, you know, working after school. So I was in year 10, uh, which in Australia is about 15, uh, which is the youngest that you can be to get a part-time job. So I worked for her for all through university as well. And I think just coming from that corporate life, she was so, she was in marketing. So she was very client focused, kind of understood the value of, of having repeat business, of treating clients well. Now I worked in a delicatessen. Now I don't think you have them here, but it's, you know, where you buy ham and cheese and I'm a vegetarian. So the ham didn't go down well, but, but, you know, I pretended for a long time. So she, she kind of understood running a small business, very different, obviously for working, she worked for a big petroleum company, but that the work ethic, the client focus, uh, she was incredible in inspiring me to do more. And actually she gave me confidence of saying, actually, you can do more than you think you're really good at what you do just working in a deli, but so that was probably the key, one of the key formative parts of growing up and of part-time jobs. Uh, and also just the trust she placed in me to do more than kind of just serving people. So, you know, I used to get to manage the cash and open up and close up when I worked on the weekend and things like that. So yeah, all of that was very formative in how, and even how I do things now. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. And then we fast forward, you go through university uh very much still in australia and you get a job at uh bt which is not what i thought bt was it's not british telecoms so. no, no no although in times of underperformance we used to pretend it was 
uh, <laughs> when someone would bail you up and say you work for that bankers trust, we would say, oh no, no, it's British Telecom. <laughs> so what was that like? How did you find your way to a job at BT? Well, interestingly enough, I actually started with a bank first out of okay. university. Actually, first off, I did the uh, requisite travel around Europe backpacking, as all ah. Australians do for a long period of time because it's so far away. Uh, so then, I, yeah, so my first job was in a bank. And interestingly enough, in my mind, I'd achieved what I wanted to, wore the suit to work. I'm in a financial services environment. I about found out really quickly that the culture was not for me. It was all about it's all about kind of doing the least work possible and the, you know, the bare minimum. And I, I just, people just weren't of the same mindset as me. So even though I was, you know, still relatively young, I kind of knew that this wasn't what I had in mind. Uh, so that's when I got the job for BT. So I resigned after about six months, my first job. I was quite conservative, so that was very bold at the time. I think it took me about four days to resign, actually. Say, you know, that was stressful. Yeah, yeah. You kind of write it all out and you're waiting for the right moment and then you just, yeah, you chicken out. So it did take a while. But then I found myself at Bankers Trust or BT and it was a totally different environment. Investment bank, high pace, high performance, real focus on uh, getting great outcomes being the best that you can be, you know, it was pretty competitive and I actually felt quite comfortable there. So that was kind of a dream, dream job. It was client services role, right? So it was on the phones, taking calls, speaking to clients. Um, a lot of my colleagues hated it. I loved it. I'd try to top the leaderboard, you know, how many calls can I take today? Whereas other people were like, you know, we don't want to speak to anyone. So I do love that. And I think it gave me good insight into Again, clients, different types of clients, how you deal with them, how you, how you win them over. Hmm. And what were the type of clients that you were dealing with at that point? What is a client of an investment bank? Or that investment uh, so, bank? so I went into a specific area, which is called margin lending. Uh, so I don't think you have it so much here, or you may have at one point, but it's people borrowing money to invest in equities. So rather than borrowing money to invest in a home, it's like you come up with a deposit of 30% and we'd lend you another 70% to buy BP, for example. You would have a diversified portfolio, mind you. But yes, that, that gives you a sense of what it was like. So actually, generally, you're dealing with relatively savvy investors. Um, they didn't often have a financial advisor, so they would come and talk about markets, portfolios, what they were buying, what they were going to borrow more of to invest in. Um so that's the kind of investor, but you had, you had rock stars, like seriously, sometimes people would ring up and you'd be like, oh my gosh, I think I know your name. Woo! <laughs> this is exciting. Um, and then you'd have people that had just saved, well, you know, for 10, 15 years and had a bit of money and they were looking to, to create wealth. So a, a, a spectrum of clients and you'd have super high net worth clients as well. But I think on average, it was more people that, um, you know, we're kind of saving for their retirement or trying to build wealth. Yeah, yeah, like it. Okay, so let's look forward through your time with with, with BT because um, mm -hmm. you were you were very successful. For you know, you kind of went through the ranks. I think that's a fair observation to make, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, yes. I was there for a long time, so probably 
want to have some upward progression over that period. But I did do a lot of lateral moves as well. So um, I think one of the big things from that time of my life was, you know, I was in this client services role. I ended up in a management role. And then our big manager, kind of, you know, maybe a couple of levels or three levels ahead of me, took me into a room one day and said, we're creating this sales role for you. And and I freaked out because I couldn't think of anything worse than be a salesperson. I don't, not that actually, sorry, I should reframe that. More I couldn't think of any one worse than me to be a salesperson. Okay. So well, here well I am. Recovered. Yeah, nothing wrong with salespeople. I love them. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of being put on the spot by someone quite senior. And I felt like there was no option except to say, thanks so much. That's awesome. It's what I've always wanted to do. So I found myself in a business development manager role at quite, at quite a young age, um, dealing with financial advisors and thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, why are they going to listen to me? Um, but, but the big learning out of that was I ended up being quite good at it. And it was because this person saw something in me that I would never have thought that I could be or do, or didn't have that skill set. So I talked to a lot of people about if someone kind of pulls you in and says, have a go at this, it's probably worth thinking about because they're probably, yeah, they're seeing something that you've shown where they think you could be really good, that maybe you're not seeing for yourself. Uh, so that was, that was, and that got me started in my sales career. So lots of lateral news, which again, I think is important. Quite often we see people so focused on just, you know, going up and there's only so far you can go, you know, and, and so much stress, frankly, that you need in your life. So I, I kind of had a, had a really good time actually having good time partying, but still having quite a senior, maybe not a senior role, but definitely a, definitely a career focused role I would say um and I and I worked across a lot of different what I would call investment areas in sales types of environments and then moved into leadership and did a whole range of other things that if you want me to talk about I can <laughs> yeah I will want you to talk about it in a minute but um okay. uh so I, I feel like on every podcast I have or maybe every other one is probably a more accurate uh, point someone will come on and say guys stop focusing on the next one up sometimes you need to go left twice and then right and then you go up um, yeah it's you know I, I posted on LinkedIn yesterday that uh, we've been doing these podcasts for one 365 days as of yesterday which is pretty cool congratulations um, yeah there we are thanks um, but that is the one message that without doubt has come through every single time um it is not about and and actually being a well-rounded executive who understands the different parts of the business and how it all comes together cross-functionally is so important that experience just not necessarily shooting lights out and being slt or, or whatever but just getting to understand the mechanics of a of a corporate business yeah. is is so important yeah, I can't agree more. It, it just, when we have our talent sessions now, we actually look for breadth mm. and, and, you know, depth kind of sends you one way, doesn't it? it it's, you're going to be the subject matter expert in some area, but eventually that's going to end. Whereas if you've done a range of different roles, gone across 
then there's probably five or six roles that you can move into as your next step if you want to go up the ladder. But if you're you're quite narrow and you just keep looking for that step up the ladder in, in your existing or with your existing skill set, I, I do think you eventually run out of runway. Now, and that might be fine because some people don't necessarily want to keep going up or some people are quite happy being a specialist. But I think if you do want to go up, then having a think about lateral moves and broadening out your skill set is is much more valued now than it's ever been. Yeah. And that is the point, isn't it? It's, we always, you know, in this role, we always talk about its trajectory. You know, where do you want to be in 15 years? And are you making a move today, which is supporting that goal? If you don't want to be a CEO or on the board, then then fair enough. You know, yeah, it's probably not the direction for you. Then get deep, you know, subject matter expertise in one functional area. And that's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you do, then you need that kind of, um, breadth of, of thinking so yeah but we'll we'll move we'll move on and so you um you found your way to your first leadership role so what was that like well so so i did have one uh in client services so relatively early on so people leadership and i swore i'd never do it again mm-hmm. never i absolutely hated it um that's probably why i took the sales role when it came up as well i was like anything to get out of here um but I think I, I, I kind of still reflect on probably my first real, real leadership role was running um, or leading the sales team. So first up, it was a state role. I'm not sure exactly what you'd say the equivalent is here. But I was head of the New South Wales, which was probably about, I don't know, maybe 10 business development managers and re-reg and transfer specialists some trainings, uh, some reporting. So it's a little bit multidimensional, but very much in my skill set around running salespeople. And uh, someone once said to me, we think you're a good leader, but wait until you manage client services versus sales. Or, you know, sales are like so motivated, they'll do anything. You know, you're always going to outperform. But when you're running um, or managing, leading, running sounds terrible, doesn't it? When you're leading different skill sets, different things motivate them. So you actually have to work a little bit harder around your people leadership, whereas salespeople, you're almost, you know, so here's the target, off you go, and they're they're off and running. Um, So, yeah, sales leadership, but for quite a long period of time. And then, ironically enough, I got offered uh, the chance to apply for a head of client services role, which actually included complaints and process improvement and was, you know, massive people leadership but also just what the heck why would you want me to do this oh my gosh um so that's that's again that was probably a turning point though in terms of career because it was so different uh and when i spoke earlier about kind of being on the edge yeah that was really 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 on the edge uh, and might be why i went off and had a child in in the in, in the middle of that just to get a little break till i came back again <laughs> Even having a child was easier. So let, let's talk about that then. Let's talk about, um, yeah, I'll never experience this, you know. Um, I've got children, but, you know, I've never been um, uh, a woman in a, in a large organization um, that has just stepped into uh, a new role, an important role, uh, a position of, you know, quite significant leadership running a department or function i i define it 
um, and then navigating having a uh, a child and coming back to work and 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 feeling uh, how do you how do you approach that how did you deal with that how did you come back yeah um oh gosh I think I mean, I mean any anyone being off on parental leave will probably say a similar thing, whether you're male or female. I think, um, but I, you know, one thing I remember is the pressure because I in Australia quite often you would take twelve months off, which I think is slightly different here. I tend to see people doing the six month kind of leave. So in Australia, it does tend to be twelve. You don't get you get paid for six, but people will string that out and do half pay for 12. So I went back after both of my girls after 11 months. And I actually think one of the most difficult things to deal with was what people would say to me, oh, you'll be so bored after three months, you'll be back. You won't be able to take that long off. And actually I loved it. I didn't want to come back to work. But you, I almost felt like a failure because of that, because people almost expected that if you're a woman and you've you're off on maternity leave. You don't really want to be off on maternity leave. You know, you're so focused on your career and being at work all the time that you couldn't possibly enjoy something else. And I did find that slightly, I, I don't think intimidating, but almost like I had to hide that I actually didn't mind being off with my child for a certain period of time. So that's one thing I remember. Mm. Uh, secondly, I do remember being a bit overwhelmed coming back and you know, I actually had a bit of a horrible experience the first time I went, the, the guy who actually is a very close friend of mine now and, and probably was at the time to a certain extent, rang me a week before I was due to come back to say, I don't really want you to come back. I'm, I want your job. I remember I was driving in the car, hands-free of course, but I pulled over and I just burst into tears. I couldn't believe it. I was already nervous enough about coming back and this guy who I thought, you know, was a trusted colleague, was actually pitching for my job. So I immediately rang my boss and he's like, oh, he had that conversation with me. Don't worry, it's absolutely fine. But I thought he wouldn't have had the guts to ring me and say that unless you'd supported him in some way. So that was that was kind of going back to work the first time for me, which was, um, do you know what, which was fine. By the end of the first week, everyone was back on track and absolutely fine and happy that I was there. But it, it's a bit overwhelming thinking, am I coming back into this and you've all been talking about me and hoping that I don't come back? But I think that's male or female, right? Whatever you are, if you're out of the workplace and then you're coming back, there is that sense of, oh gosh, do they want me? Was the person doing my job any better than what I was? Mm. And then you realise nothing's happened in the 11 months that you've been gone and it's all the same. And your inbox has got 50,000 emails in it. But yeah. Uh, so, I mean, is there any sort of advice that you would give to someone who's just coming back or maybe on maternity leave now? Um... Oh, uh, yeah. One, I think it's absolutely enjoy it because it doesn't happen that often in your life or depending on how many children you have. But let's face it, you know, probably a few times, uh, if that. So enjoy every moment of it because it does go fast. And I know everyone tells you that your kids grow up fast and that type of thing. I think everyone's different. Um, the keeping in touch days are interesting. You know, you, you want to keep in touch with what's going on at work, but I also don't think you want to be distracted by thinking about work when you're off. So uh, I think if that's your bag, then do it. But if you're not that interested, then I'm not sure that you have to 
Do you? Do you have to? Is it a regulatory requirement? I don't know. That's me. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but also I would say as well, don't lose confidence while you're not in the workplace. You know, if you were good when you left, you're going to be absolutely good when you come back. And I actually found I was so much more focused, so much more organized, so much more driven because I didn't have as much time to fluff around, you know, wanted to get home and see the kids. So there was no, you know, every inch of time was spent well. Um, so I would actually say, by the way, if you're going to employ a mother or father, you know, when they come back from maternity, you're parental leave it's probably your best time they'll be so focused love it and i suppose if we if we kind of move the conversation onto a different part of your life then um i suppose i suppose what we're talking about in some ways you could define it as like a period of change and transition um becoming a mother coming back to work after parental leave and um obviously you had a really big one in your life which was actually deciding to leave the sunshine and, and come to the uk how did that come about I totally blame my husband. Um, so he he got offered the opportunity to move over here uh, and I shut him down probably very badly as soon as he mentioned it. Exactly what you said. I was like, I, why would we leave this for gloom and grey? Um, and then, and so it all kind of petered out very fast and then I was actually doing a course in my job and there were two bricks doing it um so living in australia of british origin and i just happened to tell them that nick my husband had been offered this role and they said are you mad why wouldn't you do that i didn't even know these guys but they managed to convince me i went home to my husband and said checking that job's still going maybe we should at least think about it so this is a long story because then he came back to the offer and they said oh sorry no it's not there anymore and i was like oh okay fine not happening and then about two months later, they came back. They said, yep, ready to go. It's on. And I was like, oh, no, I'm over it now. I, <laughs> I've lost my momentum. Uh, so we came over here the Christmas of 2016. And it was unseasonably warm. We stayed in a nice hotel in Covent Garden, all the sparkly lights. I mean, even the street smelt like apple cider and cinnamon. And, yeah, I got romanced just by wandering around these amazing streets. So that that's all it took. And we were going to just kind of come for a couple of years and test it out. Oh, and that was six years ago. And I love it here. It's amazing. I miss the sunshine, but I love it. Six years, eh? And, and yeah. um, in the UK, um, you've only ever worked at Fidelity. Is that, is that right? Yes. Okay. So let, is that's a problem? I think I should. Think no, I should not on the record. I should leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not on the record um, no. <laughs> yeah um but let's talk about your career um let's talk about your observations of the difference between the, the two so we'll have a bit of a heavy conversation now so you obviously the, australia is quite progressive in many ways in financial services platforms come from australia um uh, some of the i think it's k-plan is quite similar in some ways to to how we um work through professional qualifications from a financial advisory perspective what are the differences that you've seen of the two maybe it's culturally or institutionally um i think the biggest difference if i would call it that is with the regulation of rdr here the equivalent was fofa in australia future right. of financial advice and in Australia, it actually boosted vertical integration. So um, advice, you know, 
the reforms had the same aim, you know, improve advice, you know, maybe get advice to more people, uh, ensure there was transparency with disclosure of fees and that kind of thing. So in Australia, what actually happened was the banks got more into advice. So they quite often buy an independent advice type of business, but also have like bank channel type of advisors that were probably more restricted. Whereas in the UK, all the banks got out of advice, but, you know, from what I understand, almost in a panic. So kind of like, let's, let's exit too risky. Um, you know, we don't want to invest in it anymore. So I think that's quite interesting in terms of the, the absolute difference of how that worked. But interestingly enough, over the last six years, you know, Australian banks have got out of advice with some Royal Commission issues over the last few years and kind of not great advice, not from everyone, of course, but in yeah. some areas. And then you've got here in the UK, you're seeing banks re-enter advice and maybe in a slightly different way, but recognising that there's an advice gap and banks quite often have, well, quite often they do have so many clients that they can actually help if we can, as an industry, do it in a uh, cost-effective way. So I think that's one of the biggest differences. I think culturally, um, I was surprised, and I don't think this is just fidelity, but Australia is an early country. So you'd be in the office by eight at the latest. A lot of people in earlier. Um, whereas here, you know, people would tend to come in around nine-ish, and I was like, what? I've been here for two hours. What are you guys doing? Um so I think that's that's just different. It, it it I don't think it's a longer work day necessarily. It's just working different ends of the day. Um, despite what people think, people don't just leave early in Australia and go surfing after work. Um, the amount of people that say that to me, uh, I'm sure some people do, by the way, but not everyone. Um, but then I think there's there's a lot that we're just so similar with. Although I do get picked up on some of the things that I say, like data instead of data. Data. Okay. But my kids are now British, so they pick me up as well. So I get it at work and I get it at home. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so let's talk about um, Fidelity then. So you've joined six years ago and um, I don't know exactly how many, but you know, been promoted or, or decided to different roles, maybe upwards or left or right, as we've talked about already, a number of times in that time frame. And six years is not a particularly long time. Um, to have, have had the, I guess, variety of roles that, that you've had. So how do you how do you decide that actually I'm I'm not close enough to the edge now? I need to I need more. <laughs> well, I think the job that I that I got when I came over here was definitely a sideways move. So it was something that I was really comfortable to do, by the way, because I thought new country, settle kids in understand the reg landscape, the industry, what's different, what's the same. You know, it, I had no problems with that whatsoever. But I did probably after 12 months think, oh, okay, I, I can now do this and I understand a bit more. Definitely not an expert, but understand a bit more. And I was starting to think about digital, like actually, so I was talking to our head of digital and thinking, would you take a punt on me? I don't really know a lot about digital but I'm a really good leader please um so, and and he was really supportive he was like that's okay we think we've got digital experts good leaders that's great we can we can do deal with that um and then my boss announced his retirement so in the role that I came over here Pat Shea who was head of funds network at the time uh yeah announced his retirement 
uh, which I think was probably a bit of a shock. Uh, and I did not, I was not going to go for the role uh, primarily because I didn't think I was here. I'd been here long enough. I just didn't think that would take a punt on me. Uh, although it didn't, I like in my mind, I was like, oh gosh, I don't think I can stay in this role if I'm not reporting to me. <laughs> so, um, but it did take, um, and again, I think it's interesting when you hear some of these career stories. So my boss's boss, who would be the person that I would report into if I got the job, uh, walked past him in the corridor one day and he grabbed me and said, come here, we need to have a chat. So when are you applying for the role? And I was like, oh, um, mm, I don't know. Uh, so I got a bit nervous and red-faced. Uh, and he said, look, I'd really encourage you. What's the worst that could happen? Um, you know, it'd be good to hear, hear from you. So that was it. So, and my husband, very supportive and lovely, said, you know, you'll get it if you go for it. So you've got to be prepared. And I was like, oh, no, I still don't think I'll get it. So that's that's how that happened. So I did get it, clearly. Um, and did five years in that role. Um, and I think for me, probably four years in a role like that is probably enough. But it was just kind of waiting for the right opportunity to come up that would be on the edge. So, so still allow me to transfer some skills, but then have enough kind of new that would make me uncomfortable. And that, and this is the whole, this is what we've been chatting to 40 minutes to get to, right? This is what I find really interesting. I'm sorry it's so slow. <laughs> no, it's been good fun, actually. Um, so not many people are kind of self, well, at two points, so I'll try and be a bit more coherent. Not many people are quite as proactive or strategic in their outlook in terms of how they manage their career. So that's kind of point number one. And point number two is very, very few people are constantly kind of looking at their capabilities and their skill set and their experiences and, and kind of playing that back with the direction of travel that they're trying to go to go go on and progress toward. So how do you how do you kind of picture this in your head? Where am I? Where do I want to be? I'm comfortable now. How do I get closer to the edge? How do you how do you get all this right? Uh, it's a really interesting question. I'm not sure. I don't know that I've always been good at it, by the way, because I actually once got dropped by a mentor because I didn't have a five-year plan and he wasn't going to waste his time with me. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, so so, and I don't have a plan, by the way, in terms of where I want to go or what I want to do. But I think if if people are honest with themselves, then if you're doing the same thing every day, year on year, and you don't, and and some people can do this, by the way, in role kind of stretch and stretch challenge, do different things. But I think probably for the majority of us, we need to be pushed to get there. Uh, and and I I think what I've realised is, and particularly in my last role, is I don't want to be a blocker. I don't want to be as I get older. I don't want to be that person that people look at and go, oh. They've been there for 10 years. No one can ever get that role. They're never moving. And, you know, we do see that a lot, don't we, across organisations is you get to a certain level and you're like, yep, I'm fat and happy here and this will do me. I'll just hang out till I'm ready to retire. I, I don't want to be that person. And I think that's kind of what drives me is I don't want anyone to ever think you shouldn't be there and you've been sitting there forever and you're blocking all this awesome talent and they'll never get anywhere or they'll leave our organisation because they'll get an opportunity somewhere else. So 
that was definitely driving me in my last role. Uh, definitely, I wanted to, you know, get challenged and do something different. But um, it was also around how do we keep the talent moving around the organization and not exiting. Nice, nice. And so, um, this role that you've now stepped into, um, how long have you been in position? Uh, two or three months? Yeah, if yeah. that, not two that, three. Yeah. two months. So this is, you know, the first kind of, I don't know, there's lots of books written around the first 90 days. I don't think it's quite 90 days, but, you know, it could be six months as you integrate into a new role and realize who are the na the new kind of stakeholders that I need to work with and understand and what's the team like and where's the competencies, where's, where's the not competence um how did you approach understanding that landscape and understanding this new role and, and finding your feet uh with moments of panic definitely <laughs> you know you have those moments you want this kind of new stuff and then you get it and you're like oh shit what on earth am i doing why did i think that this was going to be a good move uh so there was some moments of that um you know, the toughest thing when you take on a new role is do I have the right people? Honestly, that's kind oh, of where absolutely. I start is do I have the right people and how do I quickly decide that? Because I don't have a lot of time if we want to be successful. So meeting with everyone that was relevant in terms of direct reports, but also then across the business who may have interacted with the existing businesses and what they have a view on and, you know, just taking in everything and then disseminating, okay, what feels real? Who felt like maybe they had an ax to grind there and that wasn't quite right. What are the facts behind it? And is there data support that, you know, people's perspectives fine, but is there anything that actually does support that? So I think doing the human bit around meeting with people and obviously not just direct reports, but I met with a range of people, um, some of the client services teams I met with and just spoke to them around their daily challenges and what, what, what are they struggling with? What are the big things for them? Uh, and it's so amazing. You know, you meet with people that are really just worried about picking up the phone and doing a great job. And there's all this stuff going on in our organization and it just doesn't mean anything. It's really simple what they need to do. When I say simple, it's actually bloody hard, but you know, very straightforward, I suppose, versus all of this stuff that you get caught up with. So I think people, big one, and then you've got um, what's our path and what do we want to be as a team? What's our purpose? Why are we coming to work? What are the key things that we want to deliver? And then, you know, as I mentioned too, getting the fact base, the data, you know, anything that actually kind of helps build the picture of who we are right now and then where we want to be. That was kind of the first probably 30 or 40 days actually. Yeah, and and you said I'll, I'll pick up on something you said kind of midway through that, which was um, the point around people's perceptions. But does the data support that? And that's that's you know that's a moment of kind of potential conflict, isn't it? Um, so how do, how do you approach that conversation where people have opinions, some of them are wrong, you know, yeah. um, and your data is saying X, but they're saying Y. Um, how do you approach that kind of conversation or discussion? I don't know if I'm really basic, but I just literally say, so you're telling me um, our service levels are fantastic. Let's just say that that's it. Um, yeah. 
But actually, when I look at the report, this is where it looks like we're struggling. Can you explain that and how you kind of tally up that you think we're doing really well, yet this doesn't do that? And, you know, sometimes there'll be really valid reasons. Um, you know, yes, we are doing well because we had 10 people on holidays or something. So so there, there could be, but I think you can't, you can't argue with data. And that's why I love it because literally, yes, we're all, we all form our own opinions and views and perspectives, but actually... A solid fact base of it numbers, basically. So yeah, I'm really straightforward. Just say, just I just call it as it is. That's probably a bit Australian, by the way. I love it. I nearly didn't get employed here because Pat Shea, when he was employing me, said you might be too brash. So anyway, he took a punt on me, which was lucky. Yeah, only one swear word in this whole podcast as well, so we're doing all right. So yeah. Okay. I know. Thank you. What did I say? I didn't even say. I just said shit, didn't I? Two. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So um, what I wanted to get to, and it's perfect timing now, um, is building the right team with the right level of um, perspectives and diversity and and, 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 and men and women. And, and, you know, how do you approach building the right team and having the right level of diversity and giving people opportunity and yeah yeah so so my golden rule is you need to have the right person for the team as well as for the job and and i think what that allows you to do when you're interviewing people and particularly if it's close and you think oh they're both really good it's what do we need as a team that will balance out and will be different to what we've already got. And that's that's worked really well in my previous role and it's worked well in this role as well. So we do have, we've got a gender split, absolutely, um, perfect. Um, and we have uh, differences in other, uh, in other strands of diversity as well. Um, and, and not only even that, we had kind of team offsites earlier in the year and it's just fascinating to see different, the quieter people in the leadership team versus the people that dominate and how you kind of manage that and everyone's got something to say, right, but it's how you get everyone to actually have the space to say it. So I think, yeah, it's probably a long-winded answer to what you asked, but there's there, actually there's another thing to it's checking your own biases. So we all have them, right? We can pretend that we don't, and some people do, but we do. And so it's really checking that when you're interviewing people as well. And and I've learned from years, I, I still, I use this story quite a bit. I employed uh, someone as a team assistant who went to the same school as me. Now there was nothing salubrious about the school I went to. It was just a standard local school, but I kind of felt this kinship towards Rebecca who I employed um, and she ended up being awesome. But I reflect that and think as soon as she told me she went to Taramara High, I was like, oh, hello, you're in. We've got this connection and you must be awesome. So I think checking that now, that would not work with me. Um, so yeah, check your own biases, be, be aware of your own biases, then check them and then look at the balance of the team and ensure that it's not just best person for role, it's got to be best fit within the team as well and, and what brings what you're missing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you a little bit here. Okay. Because um, no. I think that's, it's, it's so right in so many levels. It's actually really hard. Yeah. Um, how, how do you do that? How do you ascertain 
person A versus person B is a more complementary person or as the right level of diversity over here or over there for what we need today. It's very easy to say it. It's much harder to consistently do it right deliberately. Yeah, so so that's right. And I'm, I'm not saying, by the way, I always do it right. I think there's a few things. Obviously, um, checking those biases that you can quite often get via where someone lives, the school, et cetera, et cetera, names, whatever it might be where there's, you know, just a, 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 there's always going to be not necessarily bias, but an assumption made. Um, We're very strict on having at the very minimum gender diverse recruitment lists, um, whether it's an internal recruitment process or external. And I think you've got to push on that. So definitely when I was recruiting to replace me five years ago or four and a half years ago, uh, I didn't have a diverse team. So I was clear around, I want you to bring me diverse candidates and I didn't get one, like at least from gender diversity anyway. So I couldn't get a female anywhere. Um, but, you know, when I pushed and said, come on, like there's, there's got to be more people in this world, <laughs> um, you know, they managed to find some. Uh, so I think that, and then I think when you're interviewing, um, having a diverse panel of interviewers with different perspectives, so we're pretty strict on that as well. And you do see it. It's really obvious. You can see people's biases. And I did one recently in the football team. They both like the same football team. So there are immediately this connection and away they went. And yeah, you know, it's just, that. So, so I think there's a few kind of little tricks that you can do. And I, I think also just listening, right? You can, if you've got a team who are all extroverted and quite loud and opinionated, you've got to look out then when you're recruiting that maybe you want someone that's, a little bit more introspective or, or, you know, maybe offers something different and is a bit of a thinker before they speak versus coming out with something, you know, straight away. Um, so, yeah, I think for me it's just being aware and also recognising what different people bring and therefore the, the different kind of outcomes that you can get just because people have different perspective. I get it. It's hard, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think you've got to just think deliberately about it. Exactly. Um, and I think that was a really comprehensive answer, actually. So, um, yeah, thank you. Um, so we'll move the conversation on because I do not I, I do try and be punctual. Um, so uh, let's say that you're giving someone a piece of advice now and they're just about to embark on you know, uh, the, the part of their career where um, maybe their first leadership role or, or first head of type position, you know, what's your what's your advice to that person at that stage in their career? Um, if, if they, okay. So the first thing is getting the best people in your team and don't be afraid of doing that. Uh, Plenty of times I've gone along with who I inherited or just, you know, felt a bit bad about, you know, performance managing someone or moving them on if they weren't doing the right thing or they weren't great. 
you're never going to be great if your team aren't great. So I'd absolutely make sure that you make the tough decisions if you need to. Um, if you haven't already at this level, which hopefully you have, but I would say building that network internally, but also in the industry, I found that really great since I've been here. So welcoming our industry and built up such a wonderful network of people who I can shoot the breeze with, who share information. So I would say definitely our industry is really open to that. So I'd take advantage of it, uh, but also having that sponsorship internally. Something I did, and I was probably a bit more junior than ahead of, but I set up meetings with some senior people in the business. This was back in Sydney and just asked them if I could take them for coffee and understand what they did with their career. And just because I was, you know, at a crossroads, wasn't sure what to do. And I've got job opportunities out of them, which I find fascinating because all I did was ask them questions about themselves. Yet based on that, they thought I was good at what I did. Mm. So really fascinating. Things have probably moved on, probably a bit more mature now than what we were back then. But I would say building that network, being interested in people genuinely, not just networking for the sake of it, but actually building relationships be really really important and then I think the other thing is include your people with your plans so don't just sit in your office or wherever you might be and think that you know it all because we never know it all so engaging people bringing people along with you and including them will get the most out of out of your team and I think therefore help you achieve your goals this was this is awesome you've been really good Jackie as and I, Tom, are we going to tell people I've been sitting on the floor the yeah, whole time? I think we have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair play. And you've been sat there for an hour now as well, but the video looks good. So, you know. Excellent. My, my right leg's gone to sleep. I won't be able to walk after this. <laughs> okay. Well, not long now, but no, at I'm the kidding. end of every podcast, um, mm -hmm. we always finish with our quick fire round. So I'm sure you've listened to lots, so you know this already. But um, if you haven't, uh, uh, the idea is that you don't think too much about them. Some of them are a little okay. bit personal, but not too personal. Um, okay. And you just go with it. But we've got, uh, we did one uh, about three days ago with uh, Gillian Hepburn, who's amazing. Um, and we, we put a new quick fire question in and it just landed like a dud. So I'm going to have oh. a new new one. So yeah, you're the first. What's the dud one? What's the dud? I, I asked what was your childhood nickname and she was. Um, I'll tell you one. one. Oh, do you have one? Yeah. Well, what's yours? Bud. Bud. Spud. Bud. Like a potato. Because oh. I only ate potatoes for about the 15 years of my life. Bud. There you go. Uh, I'm okay I love with it. that. But we're going to try this one as well. Okay, but fine. Anyway, so as I say, just say it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So in one word, how would your partner describe you? Shit. That's really hard. Sorry. I can't think about it for too long. Can I? Um, focused. <laughs> Focus. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, this is an easy one. What are you currently reading? Oh, it's called The Cement Garden by Ian McEwan. Oh, I like McEwan. Yeah. yeah. And it, I think it's an older one. So I, I finished Lessons by him, which is like one of the best books I've read in years. And then I saw this little cement garden. I'm just double checking the name of that. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. But keep you, you keep firing away at me. Okay, all right. Um, what's your pet hate? 
packing the dishwasher incorrectly. <laughs> I like that one. Okay, so this is the new one. Um, what's the favorite concert you've ever been? What's your favorite concert? Oh. Oh man, so many, so many. Um, do I have to go one? Can I go one Australian and then one yeah, rest of absolutely. the world? So Kylie Minogue is so much fun and she's an Aussie and she's only small like me. So I definitely vote Kylie. And then I actually think the police. Ah. Yeah. Actually, I saw Bruce Springsteen at Hyde Park recently. He was very, very impressive. Very impressive. But I think I'd go the police. The police are very good. Cool. Love it. Okay. Right. And, and for coming on the podcast... Um, you get to go anywhere in the world for one week with your partner, children or not, as the case may be. Um, where do you go? Does that have to be somewhere I've not been before? Or... Anywhere you want. I think the Greek islands. Anyone in particular? Maybe. Oh, well, I haven't been to all of them, so maybe Paros. Oh, lovely. Lovely. I hope so, because I'm picking it out of everywhere in the world. I've never been. <laughs> no, Jackie, this was so much fun. And I think there's actually loads of like golden nuggets throughout it. So thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a lot of fun. It's good. Thank you. I had fun too. Hopefully you don't have to edit too much. <laughs>